Specialty Story, session number 191. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. And on Specialty Stories, I get to talk to amazing physicians who talk about their career, talk about their specialty. And I get to learn new things like I got to learn from our guest today in a specialty that I didn't really even know existed. And that's neurodevelopmental disabilities. And it was a great conversation that I had with Dr. Selene Christensen, who is the program and fellowship director at her program for neurodevelopmental disabilities. We talk about how she found out about it, what she likes about it, what she doesn't like about it, what her day looks like, and so much more. So if you're interested in pediatrics and potentially neurology, neurodevelopmental disabilities may be a specialty for you. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Christensen became interested in neurodevelopmental disabilities to begin with. I was in medical school and planning to be a child neurologist. Um, and over time, got more and more interested in nutrition and the importance of that for maximizing development. And then also was more interested in like the changes that children go through as they get older and just found that process very fascinating. So really wanted to spend more time focusing on the kind of that typical developmental process and then thinking about all the different things that can alter that. Um, And then also trying to maximize potential for, for whatever is present. So um, was going to be a child neurologist and found this and kind of kind of sort of lucked into it. And it's been a perfect fit for me. Yeah. Very interesting. So what, before we dive even any further neurodevelopmental disabilities, and before I hit record, we were having a whole conversation about what it is, because it's something new for me even, uh, which is why I love this podcast and, and having so many great conversations who are you seeing? What what types of patients are you treating as a neurodevelopmental disability specialist? Sure. I see children who have developmental delays of, of all sorts. Um, we have kids who have severe delays in all areas, um, and we have other kids who have milder speech delays. And there's there's so many different things you can do with the training. And so it's it's really good for people who are interested in a lot of different things. Um, I'm primarily interested in kids with genetic conditions that cause developmental delays. Um, And so that's who I see most of the time. Um, But I have colleagues who spend most of their time with, I don't know, significant, well, any ranging from severe to mild motor disabilities. Um, and then also cognitive uh, issues, the same. So intellectual, severe to profound intellectual disability, all the way up from all the way up to specific learning disabilities, and anywhere in between. Wow, why is there a separate residency path for this versus 
a pediatric neurologist taking care of those same kiddos? It takes a little, we have more focus on the developmental process uh, than, than child neurologists do. We go through the same training um, that they, I mean, the residency program divided out is, it's two years of general peds, and that's the same for NDD and child neurology. And then both groups do a year of adult neurology. And then NDD folks do 18 months of child neurology, whereas the child neurologists do two years of child neurologist or, or child neurology. And then developmental folks do 18 months of developmental pediatrics. And they only they do development within child neurology or if they take special electives. And so we get that extra 18 months really focusing on developmental milestones and all the different health problems that can impact development and then how you maximize developmental uh, potential. Interesting. What are some of the traits or the, the number one trait you think that a neurodevelopmental disability specialist neurologist needs to have to take care of their patients? I think it's the ability to listen to families and a, a lot of a lot of what we do takes time. And so it's really asking about the details of when did this start and what have you done and what do you notice and how, how did your child respond to different therapies that have been tried? Um, what are the frustrations? Um, what are the other health? I mean, there's just, there's so much that can impact or change uh, a child's developmental trajectory. And you really have to account for all of those things. So you have to think about, you know, prenatal exposures, um, early childhood environment, any medical issue that could come up that could impact uh, development. And a lot of them can, um, including eczema. So if you're spending all your time itching all the time, you may not focus very well on doing other stuff. Um, so you just really have to factor in a lot of different things to be able to, to tease apart what is the major underlying issue that needs to be addressed, but then also addressing all the smaller things that are also impacting someone's development. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that you're constantly fighting? I think that, well, one is no one knows who we are. <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm <laughs> Including not sure doctors. Are <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that there are myths because frankly, no one knows what we are, what we do and who we are. Um, and I think a lot of times it's, you take care of kids with autism and it's a lot more than that. Um, I mean, our children with autism are a major uh, population that we care for, um, but there's a lot of other things uh a lot of other conditions that we could, we help with and see quite a bit. Um, it's a small enough field that how people practice at different places, it, there, there are some differences. And so even like transferring institutions, kind of learning the, how different places practice is important. Yeah. I have so many questions because, again, it's such an unknown specialty out there. Um, as as you were going through this process as a medical student, again, because because the neurodevelopmental developmental disabilities is a separate residency from pediatric neurology. Um, 
what what allowed you to make that decision to go i know that i want to be a neurodevelopmental disability neurologist and be one of only a handful of specialists, it seems, with only a, a few residency programs in the country versus potentially going the pediatric neurology route and 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 potentially having more uh, more ability to match into your specialty of choice and more ability to maybe find a job because it was a more known specialty and then subspecialize from there into what you wanted. So... My thought process was that neurologists are very good at understanding neurologic function and how the brain works and how, and specifically for child neurology, how that impacts development. I also wanted to have a better grasp on other medical problems that also impact development. Um, And then... For IU specifically, we are very much focused on feeding, growth, um, and nutrition. So that was really attractive to me because so many children with neurologic disorders, especially those that cause delays, also have feeding problems. And I wanted to be able to help with that. Interesting. So a lot of students love the Sherlock Holmes of of medicine to be able to really figure out what is going on. Is that a big part of of your job and is trying to figure out what's going on with the kids or is do they come in with a known issue and then you're there to to really help stabilize and manage them? I would say both. Um, we one of my colleagues likes to call us the SWAT team of the hospital. <laughs> Uh, We just come in and take care of whatever is needed uh, to be done. So, I mean, I see a number of patients who already have an underlying diagnosis. And so then it's looking for, well, how do we maximize potential? What therapies are necessary? Are there other medical issues that may come up, like hearing loss later that we should be screening for so we know about it earlier and get that addressed as soon as possible? Um, And then we have a a large number of patients who um, we don't understand why they have the developmental issues that they have. And so we not only are assessing developmental function, making sure people are in appropriate therapies, but then considering, well, why does this person have their developmental issues? You know, is it something that maybe happened during pregnancy? Is it genetic Is it related to a trauma that was experienced early, um, a neonatal infection? There's many possibilities. And so we consider all of those things um, and then try to uh, determine a specific etiology when that's possible. And it's not not always possible with, with what we have available now. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you? Um, well, I, uh, I, I see patients most of the time. Uh, when, well, when I'm wearing my clinical hat, um, we uh, spend time in clinic. So I spend, I spend about an hour with every patient, um, face-to-face time in the room, which I absolutely love. I, I spend time talking <laughs> to people and then playing with kids. And, and I think that that's a great job. Um, so 
It's also a lot of coordination of care. And so it's sending messages to the other specialists who are seeing the child saying, how much do you think this is contributing? Or I noticed, you know, X, Y, or Z about your patient. Is there anything that you could help with? Um, we also work on a really big team um, because it takes a lot of people to uh, make sure that kids are getting what they need in, in ways that they need it. So I work with dietitians very closely, uh, social workers. Uh, we have a genetic counselor on staff. Um, we have nurse practitioners who work with us. I actually have general pediatricians working under me as well because uh, there, there are so few NDD specialists out there. We're, we're looking at how, how do we uh, basically maximize you know, uh, our impact. Um, and it's, it's a lot of communicating and coming up with a team approach uh, that's individualized for every patient. Um, then, of course, you know, the, the downside is that I spent, also spent a fair amount of time writing notes, but I've gotten better at that over, over the years. <laughs> uh, neurology notes are notorious for being really, really long. Mine are longer. <laughs> um, for someone who likes to work with their hands, how, how much procedure stuff is involved with neurodevelopmental disabilities? There is limited procedures. So I, I do LP or lumbar punctures uh, sometimes, not often. Um, and I also look at G-tubes a fair amount. Um, while I can uh, replace a G-tube and take, so the happiest days when you need to take out the G-tube, that, that's, a, that's a great day. Um, and so I always take out the G-tube, um, but other G-tube care, I have nurses who help me do that. So um, most of my job is talking to families, talking to kids, observing different uh, areas of their development. And then and it's honestly, and you do that mostly for kids through playing. So it's, it's a lot of playing games. Yeah. Very fun. So what does the, the training path look like to, to be you? Sure. So there are eight programs within the uh, country right now that uh, train people to be a neurodevelopmental pediatrician. And it is a minimum six years of training. Uh, for categorical spots, you match uh, directly out of medical school. And then it's two years of general pediatrics. It's 12 months of adult neurology, and then it's 18 months of child neurology and 18 months of developmental pediatrics. We have some folks who hadn't heard about NDD before they matched into either child neurology or potentially, or actually more commonly, general pediatrics. Um, it is possible to switch after two years of general peds um, into an NDD program and then do the four years of training that, uh, that it requires. And then I think more rarely these days is we've had some folks do the full three years of pediatrics, go out and practice for a while and then come back and do the additional four for NDD. Yeah. They're like, I don't need my attending salary. I'm going to go back into training. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's exciting. They are looking at adding a new pathway where you do five years of child neurology and then do an additional 12 months of developmental. And then you'd be able to sit for the NDD boards as well. That's not quite finalized, but I anticipate that it will be ready in the next year or two. Interesting. How competitive is it? It's, it's competitive if you want to stay in a certain place mm -hmm. um, because there are very few slots. 
uh, nationwide. Um, I would say overall, I think this year's match, I think two thirds of the people who applied matched um, into an NDD program. Um, I would say when I look at applicants, many are also co-applying to pediatrics or also applying to child neurology as well. We have very few who only apply to NDD. Do you think that ends up hurting a student if they're applying to other specialties and not dead set on NDD? Or do you think because there are other ways to get back into NDD that they're okay? I, I, I don't think it hurts people. Um, I think you have to look at what you want out of life um, and how important being in a certain place is. Mm. Um, and I also think using interviews to figure out where you fit best is, is really important because many different kinds of doctors will work with this patient population. Mm. Um, and so I think that NDD training is quite important and makes, I think it makes you best able to work with this patient population, but also because there's limitations, it's, there, there's, so, there's so much need yeah. um, that I, I never look down on people who are applying to different programs. Yeah. What does call look like for you? Call is, for us in our group, we are probably once a week maybe twice a week at most, um, but it's at home when we take, we basically staff uh, phone calls from residents who are admitting patients to our service. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Absolutely. And that's why I do. That's one of the reasons I, <laughs> I, 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 I went this route over child neurology. I think our lifestyle is a little bit better. Yeah. Um, actually, I think the call frequency is less often uh, for us and it's definitely less intense. Yeah. It's absolutely less intense. Um, you're, you're more likely to get some more sleep on a NDD call than you are on child neurology call. <laughs> for, for someone who wants to be out in the community, doesn't see themselves in an academic setting, is, is neurodevelopmental disability, is that a, a field for them or is it more an academic specialty? I think it is more of an academic setting or specialty right now. That said, two of uh, IU's graduates have, I mean, have gone out and don't work at one of the academic centers. I mean, they work at a children's hospital in a a medium-sized city, um, but you do not have to stay at the academic center. Um, I think it's, again, there are, what, one in six Children in the United States have some sort of developmental disability, according to the CDC. So that's a lot of kids, um, and they're they're just not enough of us. And so I think there's lots of flexibility in what what people can can do with yeah. it. I, mean, I think a fair number of people who go into this are interested in research, um, and so that attracts people to stay at the academic center. And but. I'm not overly interested in research. I like seeing, I actually like seeing kids and then teaching other people how to do it well. Yeah. Um, so that's the reason I stay at the academic center is because I like to teach. Yeah. What makes an applicant competitive for your program? Um, it's experience working with kids. Um, I think makes people really, impo- uh, really uh, competitive. And then also really look closely at those extracurriculars like if you are, you know, working with kids with autism or kids outside of the healthcare setting who have uh, 
developmental issues. I think mm. that looks really, really attractive. Um, you know, I look at scores to some extent because it you you need to take three boards, and so it's uh, I, I need people who can pass who can pass board exams. Yeah, and and the, and the pediatric board is notoriously difficult. I would say child neurology is more difficult really? than PEDS. Wow. Yeah, the, the the neurodevelopmental disabilities boards after you've gotten through the other two are <laughs> super easy because <laughs> that's what you do every day. Yeah. <laughs> At least you know um, the the child neurology board was was the most difficult for me personally. Yeah, and I think that's pretty common um, among NDD grads. Yeah, and are those boards? Do you have to keep those as you continue on? Or once you find your kind of niche and your specialty, you don't need to keep your pediatric board anymore. So that is a great question that uh, <laughs> gets answered differently depending on who you ask. Yeah. Um, you have to uh, keep child neurology and uh, to keep NDD um, because the NDD is a basically a subspecialty uh, under the child neurology uh, umbrella, whereas the pediatrics board is a different uh, group uh, who administers that. Yeah. Interesting. For the osteopathic student listening to this, what, what do they need to do to overcome any sort of potential negative bias out there? I wouldn't have them do anything differently. I mean, I, I, I look very favorably on osteopathic, uh, applicants and um actually two of my faculty uh, are are DOs. So it's again it's showing that interest in the patient population. Mm-hmm. And then if at all like trying to seek out talking to someone who is in the field, I think that that's also really helpful. Um, I think it's there are so many applicants who don't have the opportunity to actually work with an ND, with a neurodevelopmental pediatrician, because again, there are so few of us in the country. I mean, that's that's nice if it's possible, but it, it's more about showing that interest in the patient population. Yeah. Interesting. For the future pediatrician listening to this, general pediatrician, what do you wish they knew about what you're doing day in and day out to help them uh, and to help their patients and to help you? Um, I wish pediatricians would refer for therapies the second they know a child is delayed. Um, it breaks my heart when people, when kids show up to my clinic and aren't already in therapies, um, at least something, um, or that referral hasn't been made. Um, I would say that my my, my team is better at getting people into therapies, you know, finding different resources um, it, just because I have more people <laughs> to spend more time doing that. Um, but I, I don't, I think that early therapies are absolutely critical and sooner the better. Um, the other thing that I wish Gen Peds would recognize a bit more is uh, for, for growth is that if you are short, you can weigh a little bit less and still be okay. It's more about being proportional <laughs> yeah. than having your weight on the chart. Yeah. Um, what do you know now that you wish you knew before going into NDD? I think the amount of behavioral management um, was actually a little bit more than I expected it to be. Um, and 
how many things overlap with autism that actually aren't autism. Mm. Um, I think that that's a, it's a huge question that so many families and people who work with children are asking. Um, and it gets to be, you know, it's interesting to see that the number of people or children with autism is going up and up and up. And why that is, is I think somewhat a challenge. I think part of it is that we recognize it more. Um, but children with delays also do some things that kids with autism also do, but they may not necessarily have autism. Um, and then also how, how frustrating it is to not be able to communicate. <laughs> and so we see a lot of kids who have speech delays who just have really challenging behaviors. I'm like, well, why, why is this? Um, let's, let's work on, so a lot of times my answer for uh, behavior problems is let's get them in some speech therapy. <laughs> And it's, it's surprising how well that works. Yeah. What do you like the most about your job? I like working on the team. Um, I like seeing kids make small improvements. Um, I think that as long as children make slow improvements, we're doing, we're doing a good job. We're, we're, we're doing the right things. Um, I think you have to, ex I mean, or at least I have had to over time. Most of the kids I see will never be typical, and many of them will not live independently. And accepting that and see, taking those small successes as joys, because they are joys, um, and th that's, I, I, I come to really enjoy those uh, very small victories. <laughs> what do you like the least? Um. I think it's and no writing. <laughs> no writing is my least favorite thing that I do um, in general. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy the people. It's medical documentation is is challenging, and we do write uh, write fairly lengthy notes because yeah. uh, there's there's so much to consider uh, when you're putting together a whole picture. Yeah. When it comes to your specialty, whether it's through technology, faster genome sequencing, understanding more of what the genes do and the gene-to-gene -gene interactions, um, do you see any big changes, big shifts coming to, to NDD? Um, genetic testing is taking off like wildfire, which confirms that I made the, the correct decision. So I, was, I trained as a genetic counselor before I went to medical school. And, you know, I trained in the days where you could do a karyotype and sequence one gene at a time. And the fact that I can order a whole exome, kind of, it, it still blows my mind, even though we've been doing it for, what, six, seven years <laughs> at this point. Um, the ability to get answers is, is really, I mean, I, I think it's interesting and it's also exciting. And it's just very satisfying to have a reason. Um, I think the next thing that will come is genome, but I don't really see that as much different as, as testing because I, I like figuring out answers. The next step is going to be actual treatments. Um, and those are coming. Now, I, I always tell people, I will never give you a specific day <laughs> that, that, that this will come, um, but, but it definitely is. Um, I want to say within the last year, I think there were 600 active gene therapy trials out there. Yeah. Um, and 
my group of conditions that I work with, they're, they're, those things are coming. Yeah. So th- that's what I'm most excited about being able to do. So uh, one of the things that uh, is exciting is that they're coming but they come with a price tag. And and we were talking before we record of a, one of the newer gene therapy drugs uh, breaking the bank at $2.1 million. Um, yeah. It's a single dose. So hopefully that's that's all there is. Um, and the alternative is a life lifelong $375,000 a year. Um, how do we as physicians, and for everyone listening to this, future physicians, how do we stop that madness? That, that is a great question. Um, I think a lot of it, it it's, I, 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 I <laughs> that, that madness, I don't have an answer. You don't for that know. Yeah. I think it's the, I think you look at what do you actually get out of this medicine? What is the reasonable expectation Mm -hmm. and how does that compare with not doing it? Um, Because if you take someone who would have needed total care for their entire life and you treat them with something and now they can live on their own and have a job and have a family I'm not sure what kind of price tag I, I would put on that personally um, for, for an individual. Now, when you look at those things for our healthcare system, now those answers are different. Um, and so, in, it, it, and I think that that's, that's really challenging. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of working with drug companies on why do, does this really honestly cost that much? Um, and, you know, working with the healthcare system in general, which yeah. you know, I, I can, I can tell you my specific thoughts about that um, <laughs> as a healthcare provider, but then also as a patient myself. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's really challenging. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. Some of these genetic uh, diseases, potentially missing a protein that I just, I wonder the, the COVID pandemic has been horrible, but one of the silver linings is really rushing to the forefront, this mRNA technology that's been around for a while, Yes. but we had to push it into the limelight and go, look, it works uh, mm-hmm. right away. And I just, I wonder if we can just give, give a little bit of different genetic code and go, go make this protein instead of a spike protein, go make this protein that I'm missing in my body that's causing yeah. Tay-Sachs or uh, lysosomal storage disease, whatever. I don't even know these things anymore. It's been so long since medical school, uh, but I it'd mean, be they, very they're interesting. Starting gene, they're starting gene therapy for Tay-Sachs. Yeah. There, there are trials for that now. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, so yeah, you put in a tiny, a tiny plasmid with a gene that's been inserted and then the body takes it up and it makes, it makes a protein that you're missing. Yeah. I think the more challenging ones will be the ones where you have a protein that's doing something we don't want it to do and then making that go away. That, that's, yeah. that's the bigger challenge. Yeah. Replacing is, is, is definitely doable and has been proven. Um, so anything where it's lack of protein, like those treatments will come online much faster than where it's a, what we call a dominant negative. Mm. Or you have something that's doing something we don't want it to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, 
Uh, it's kind of hard to stamp out that that gene in trillions of cells. <laughs> yeah, um, or at least at least the important one yes. is where we start. But yeah. yeah, if you had to do it all over again, would you still be a neurodevelopmental neurodeve- specialist? Absolutely. Yeah, this, this was the the right choice. Um, you know, I had a, I had a lot of people say, "Why on earth are you going to medical school? You have a profession." <laughs> um, like I I want to be able to answer the why. Did this happen? And then also help take care of it. And so I, I mean, yeah, there are frustrations day to day when kids don't get what they need and, you know, for a variety of different reasons, but most days it's working with families where kids have made small progress and, you know, I, I love when the you know families come in and like they finally walked or you know they they said mama on mom's birthday and like <laughs> you know that I mean that stuff you know you just that that that's that that's the part I love and yeah I would I would I would do it all over again I would do the full ten years again. <laughs> Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this, or maybe even the the pediatric resident listening to this, going wow, maybe I, I want to go into that field. I think it is, it's a calling and it's exciting and challenging and it's never boring. I mean, I never really do, you know, my day-to-day stuff is fairly varied. I do similar things, but for different kids who have different issues. Um, So yeah, it really keeps you on your toes. And so if you're looking for that, uh, then, then I think we, we are a, a good place to land. Um, I think the fact that we're so rare, I would hope not hope that people wouldn't be put off by that. Cause I think it really makes you marketable. I mean, developmental, uh, specialists are needed desperately nationwide. And so I, I generally tell people you can go pretty much to any state, any medium or larger city that you, that you want to and, and get a job. Um, because, you know, we, I mean, our, our wait list over the year has fluctuated from three months to we're, we're pushing closer to six months right now. Um, we got it all the way down to like three weeks uh, when, when the, when everything shut down for the pandemic, but yeah, um, it's, it's yeah. funny uh, whenever I hear students um, doing mock interviews and stuff, just, just having fun talking about universal healthcare. Like, why don't we have universal healthcare? And they're like, well, Canada, the wait times are just horrible. I'm like, have you tried to see a specialist in our country anytime recently? (laughs) You're waiting two to three months, if not longer. Uh, it's it's kind of funny. Um, I'm, I'm right there with you for universal healthcare. That's how we get the prices down. That is exactly how we get the prices down. Uh, Well, awesome. I appreciate your time and your wisdom uh, speaking with me today. And hopefully we'll get a a couple new neurodevelopmental disability specialists out in the world through this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Selene Christensen, a neurodevelopmental disabilities specialist. Again, something I didn't really know anything about. So hopefully this was helpful, gave you some exposure to a new specialty. You get to learn something new. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.